You're listening to Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jam. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Screenwriters Need to Hear This. I'm Michael Jammon. I got a special guest today. But you know the way um, the Letterman Show always opens with, you know, my next guest needs no introduction. Well, my next guest needs an introduction. But he's Mike. <laughs> but, but you know what? All writers need introductions. No one's ever heard of any of us. But I'm here with Brian Behar. And he is, dude, this guy's got a, he's a sitcom writer with a list of, a laundry list of shows that he's worked on. I'm, Brian, I'm going to run through those because I'm sure you've forgotten half the credits. That's how many credits you have. All yeah, right. I, I can name three. So please. <laughs> we start his, his career with the illustrious Teen Angel. And then we slowly move up to working. I remember that show. I'd forgotten you were on work. You were I started shows. with Ned and Stacy, but that may not have appeared on the on your laundry list. Uh, my researchers, who basically just download IMDb, did not tell me that. But we're going to go on the IMDb order. Okay, <laughs> that's accurate. Uh, then Dag, remember that show with Andy and Eileen? Baby Bob, you remember yes. that show? Baby yes, Bob, big, the biggest hit I've ever been on. <laughs> then A U S A, and I still quit because, I, as I told the showrunner, my self esteem can't handle running into anyone I went to high school with <laughs> and telling them I'm on Baby Bob. Sorry, Saltzman. Sorry. The, then A U S A, and then Andy Richter controls the universe. Guys, hang on. This guy's got so many credits. Then I'm with her, although we're not sure if it's I'm with her or I'm with her. Brent Musburger said, I'm with her. So it was, I'm with her. <laughs> I'm with her. <laughs> I'm, I'm coughing. Then eight simple rules. How many of the rules did you ever get to before they canceled the show, by the way? Uh, we were on the fourth rule. Fourth rule. I was on, by the way, rules of engagement. So, oh, we, so we yeah. Can... I've, and I've done three shows with working in the title. <laughs> <laughs> then, then the new adventures of old Christine. The, the old conventions of new Christine would have been better, but apparently that's okay. Then the Jake effect. Yes. Shots. I don't even know what that is, to be honest. Oh, that was a, that was a highly touted one hour. Oh, so you can talk about some drama experience. I can We've talk had, about anything. Then whether, it doesn't mean, doesn't mean you're talking about, but you can talk about anything. Yeah, no, you're, you're not going to be able to stop me. <laughs> then big, okay, big shots. Then True Jackson VP, which was on Nickelodeon. One episode. I, I wrote. A, I wrote a story. Let's not okay. get carried away. All right. Let's not give you too much credit. Then Wilfred, which we worked on together. Yes. Talking dog show. Oh, that's a, where's our other talking dog show? That that should have been. Uh oh. Getting getting there. Glenn Martin DDS. No one knows what that is, but that's when we first worked together. But if you love uh, Canadian cable claymation shows, you might like Glenn Martin. <laughs> you might like it. Uh, if, Last Man if Standing. You like animation with a laugh track that isn't Jabberjaw <laughs> 1974, you're going to love Glenn you're Martin. You're going to love. That's how they promoted it. Then uh, Last Man Standing, which you were not yeah. one of the last men standing on that show. No, I was the first to go, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jack, no, Jack was the first to go. Jack, the the, the creator, creator of the show was the first to go. Yeah. Safe then he came game. back and then he went again and then he came back. So, yes. He, I didn't realize he came back. <laughs> Sorry. Then Save Me. I don't know what that is. Do you know what that is? Give me a moment. Was that just a letter that you wrote to your agent? <laughs> um, I did. I did write that letter from the writer's room of Save Me. Um, <laughs> that was a show about Anne Heche 
thinks she can speak to God, and that was the least crazy part of the show. Oh, I did not know that. We'll talk about that. Yes, please. Uh, then we'll talk about Kirsty, which we worked again on. You guys brought I mean, me and my partner in on to do a freelance of that. And I had the great Jay Kogan on the show a couple weeks ago. Oh, my goodness. Well, you, you've got to everyone before me. Oh, I, I, yeah, this is bottom of the barrel week. I know, so, I saw the list. I was like, <laughs> really? But go ahead. Uh, I also have your Jennifer Falls. And does not get back up. Yes, all, <laughs> yes, I've heard them all. Um, Ratings Falls. Then Ned and Stacy we have on here. I don't know why it's, it's out of order here, but yes, that was 1997, Ned and Stacy. And then go. finally, uh, you, were the, you were the showrunner of Fuller House, the, the Full House remake. That is correct. I was what? A, now, you, now you is this that? the first time you're hearing this? I had no idea. <laughs> I, you, you know, you're fond to say that I think you've like you've worked on tw is 26 shows. Is that what it is? <laughs> 21 shows in 26 seasons. 21 shows. And think about it. So this is a career, guys. You yeah, are. Now, this is the hard way to do it. It is the hard way. The, Apply for a new job twice a year. Yeah. And. It's actually, I mean, to be honest, it was um, <clears throat> it was more doable then than it is now. I mean, now it's really hard to do that. I have no idea what people do now. Um, yeah, which is which makes me a sort of sort of a sham as a a, a teacher of, of sitcoms as I'm trying to um, encourage and promote people to take a take the the risk and uh, and jump in. But uh, I have no idea what a career trajectory uh looks like today it was it it, it was very uh understandable when we broke in like yeah. it was, like there was a clearer path and you're like oh i can go from show to show and there's enough sitcoms and there's you know i can just if i lose one job i'll just walk to the next bungalow on cbs right. Redford and knock on the door and hope somebody else lets us in but that's, that's what i say i say <clears throat> maybe i wonder if you agree i say that um I think it's easier to break in now, but it's harder to make a sustain a career. What do you think? Um, well, I'm, I'm certainly not going to disagree with you on your own show. I mean, you're, you're, <laughs> please, you're, if you do, you I just your, edit it out. You have your burgeoning media empire here. <laughs> and I'm looking to be part of it. Um, God, how many TikTok does it? Okay. Um, yeah. I think you're right. Um, and by that, I, I, I don't know if it's harder to sustain a career. I see a lot more people not entirely willing to commit to putting a career together. What does that mean? Which I mean, there's been such a, on social media and in the press, there's such a sort of hype surrounding the concept of like the celebrity showrunner that, and, and sort of with the advent of streaming services that there's this idea that anyone can get a show on the air at any time and immediately jump from like an unemployed, unemployable, aspiring writer to a showrunner mm -hmm. without doing any of the work in between. Like, you know, I know I hate to sound old fashioned, but you and I, we definitely put in the time working up the rung, working up the ladder. So when we finally got that call to run a show, I, you know, we, we had the skill set, presumably. You know, yeah. we had been learning, we've been acquiring a certain set of skills. Um, and I don't know that that is really like promoted as much. But are you seeing people with not with not a lot of experience becoming showrunners? No. Um, 
but I'm seeing, but I'm hearing a lot of that's the aspiration. Oh, oh yes, that's for sure. I hear that a lot. You know, like, yeah, okay. you know, because I know you talk to a lot of people, you know, who are, you know, aspiring TV writers. And I, you know, I was doing a lot of talks on, on Clubhouse and a lot of ask me anything kind of talks on, on Twitter. And, and the, the question always sort of circles back to how do I sell a pilot to Netflix? How do I get a show on the streamer? How do I become a showrunner? And it's not like, oh, what samples do I need? Yeah to break in, what skills do I need to move up the ladder? So um, you know, and it's just a different mindset. Like it never would have occurred to me. I didn't, I didn't even sell a pilot or even attempt a pilot until I had been on 12 networks at college. It's so fun, Brian, it's like, maybe we're just the old guys, but this is exactly what I say all the time. I mean, so I'm glad that I'm not the only one saying it or thinking oh. at least. No, but you, there are two, there are two old guys. Yeah, we have become the guys from the Muppets, but the cranky old guys. Yeah, and the, yeah, the uh, Waldorf and Statler. But but uh, you, so I want to actually want to mention this. I want to jump around for a second. So yes, you are also teaching at Chapman University. You're teaching. Uh, is it television writing? What are you? What, what's your course? Um, yeah, um, I'm teaching. I, I just I started last semester. For, this is mm -hmm. my first time, um, and and currently in this fall semester, I'm teaching two classes. One is a sitcom writing class. Uh, for graduate students, uh -huh. and one is a pilot writing class for undergrads, and then I'm going to do two, they've already asked me back uh, for two sitcom classes uh, in the spring semester. Wow, so that's great. Be, yeah, it seems to be what I do. Uh, you, so you're I, enjoying it then? I love it, I love it. And I, you weren't uh, sure if you were going to enjoy it? No, I, it, it actually took a little bit of mm, a little coaxing internally in the family you know my yeah. wife had a bit of a come to jesus moment with me you know how the, i don't know if you've heard the old joke but they say that in hollywood you, you're retired for seven years before you realize it well i had been retired for three years and my wife was certainly well aware and i was <clears throat> and i was starting to get it um and she really was you know she really sat me down and said like you know is this what you want to do the rest of your life just keep banging your head against the same wall or is there, an, is there a wall you can go around and find something that gives you joy? And this has been great. This what is, exactly do you like about it? Well, I like not being on a TV show, which apparently Hollywood, Hollywood and myself have the same like. So, <laughs> you have uh, the same goal for you. <laughs> they both, they, my, my uh, agent, manager, Hollywood producers and, and teaching all see it the same way. Um, <laughs> No, I, I love, I mean, it, 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 it's something so special to be around people who just are filled with nothing but hope and nothing but confidence. And, you know, it's really, I mean, if I have to spend my days around people who are positive and, and still love, have a love for the art and a love for the craft and would give anything to be in television or be, you know, be by myself or be around a lot of bitter people complaining about why they're not in, you know, I'll take the four hours of driving down to Orange County anytime. Uh, it, it, it's it's been great, and I didn't. I had no idea if I would like it. Well, um, first of all, it's not really a four-hour drive. It's it's two hours each way. Right. Okay. Um, so yes, for clarity's sake, okay. it's not a four-hour drive each way, but it but, is. Uh, but and I'm sure what surprises you, because it does surprise me, is just is how much you actually know about how to do this, right? Well, that's the other fun part. Sorry. I mean, that's is 
I mean, and I don't mean it in like a like a smug, self-satisfactory kind of way that like, wow, I'm I'm smart, I've learned things. But when you're at when you're actually seeing it through the perspective of of new writers and you know and new students and 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 you're imparting knowledge on them and and it's and like you said, it's not even knowledge that you're aware you have. Right. You know, like we've almost picked it up by osmosis. But I mean, you know me, and I think you're a lot, you're really kind of the same way. Where you know, we were both students of, of television, students of the TV history, students of the craft, you know, more than a lot of people who we did it alongside. I mean, so I think it makes sense that the two of us have found versions of of offering guidance and coaching and yeah. and you know and trying to impart expertise. But it is it is really satisfying and gratifying to to realize like wow I I actually did learn something I actually have a certain <laughs> level of skill and you know all those years were not for not yeah I'm spelling not differently in those two cases but K N O T not for nothing yeah <laughs> like I mean I know you're from the tri-state area I should have, <laughs> I should have said it more colloquial. But um, and so yeah, good. So the, and you're enjoying that, and you the class sizes are kind of small, or what? Yeah, I had uh, seven last semester. My grad student was is nine, and then wow. fifteen. Uh, I got fifteen in my uh, pilot class. You know, but it's it, it's way tougher than I expected. You know, like I like they turn in you know like pages of a script or an outline uh, the day before we go into class, and I and I'm so like you know, of, of the neurotic sense of, I need to give them their money's worth, you know, they're paying a lot for the, so I write up about three pages of notes per student, per class. Wow. So like in my pilot class, that's, I'm writing up 45 pages of notes between the hours of two and eight on a Thursday night, just to make sure I have something to, to give them. A lot of work, dude. You know, on, you know, on Friday, it's like, wow, you know, I, I used to do half the amount of work for a lot more money, but it, you know, I don't know that I would do that again. And, and really? again, no one's asking. <laughs> no, <laughs> not let me, let me be clear. <laughs> and that's okay. I've made. I really have made my peace, which <laughs> which is threatening to people. You know, I had I had lunch with a writer we both know the uh, last week, and he's like, "You you want back in?" I was like, "No, I really don't." He's like, "You can't be at peace." I'm like, "No, I'm at peace." He goes, "What if I offered you?" Yeah. And I was like, he goes, what if I offered you a job on a, on a, on a pilot? I was like, okay, well, first you'd have to get it on the air and you're not going to offer it. I said, but yeah, sure. Let's say you offered me a job. I'm not going to like turn it down out of hand. Um, but I don't think it's going to happen. He goes, yeah, probably not. He goes, your old partner's uh, wife works at the network. She'd never let me hire you anyway. I'm like, then why are we having this discussion? You, wait, better, you better pay for lunch. Could you wait? Can you say who it was? This was Marco from. Uh, oh, Marco, from really? Marco from, uh, yeah, from uh, Kirsty. Yes, Marco from Kirsty. Hello, Marco from Kirsty. Hello, Marco from Kirsty. <laughs> one, one of my dear friends, but, you know, but I think, you know, for a, a lot of people that, you know, this, and I'm not singling him out, you know, that being a writer on television becomes one's identity. And, yeah. and, and it was for me for a long, long time, you know you know, 25, 26 years of, of doing it. But, it, you know, at some point, you just have to read the writing on the wall if that's if that's where your career is at. And, and that's where- Are I'm you at. still doing any other writing outside, just for your for personal reasons? 
yeah, I'm doing all kinds of writing, but none of which is with the intent of making a TV selling show, selling a pilot, or or getting back in, you know, on staff. Yeah. And and that's you know, you know, we've talked about this off camera a lot over the last you know five six years, just finding our own voices and and finding other avenues to to write on you know on my own. And so I'm like, I'm still writing a you know you know a lot of essays. Um, I, you know, I've, I had written, a, I think, 40 essays for the Huffington Post um, over the past five years, another 20, 25 for Medium, and, and then I've moved my stuff over uh, to Substack. Um, so I recently wrote a, a, an article about growing up in Encino that was shared 10,000 times, um, and I performed it at a... Um, wow. I performed it at a spoken word night. And that was all from Substack? It got shared 10,000 times? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, what, what plug it I know, apparently I know a lot about the Valley. <laughs> but, uh, and you have a lot of fun. We'll plug it again at the end, but I want to make sure, might as well mention it now as well. What's your Substack name? Oh, How do find you. I assume it's, it, it's, it has to be Brian Bihar. That's with Brian with a Y, but I can, I can check. I'm sorry. This is, this is not going to make great television watching an old Jew look up, look up his Substack address. <laughs> but uh, I just, um, I just got, oh, Brian, Brian Bihar. Oh dot substack.com but i just got two twitter notifications saying that even though this uh, episode hasn't aired it's already being referred to as too jewy <laughs> what are you gonna do? You elon know? musk he's ahead of time <laughs> he's, he's he's making it better um yeah i've lost ten thousand followers in the last week and i don't think i've gotten that much less funny i but uh i mean think- there's just a, there's just a twitter attrition yeah so oh. as you but in, in reference to your other question, yeah, I'm still still posting a ton on Twitter and on on Facebook. I I wrote a novella, um, which is just a novel that I didn't have enough words to legally call a novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been writing my articles, doing spoken words, so really doing everything but the stuff that used to pay me, and uh, but and loving it, and loving it, and it's, loving it, and that's great. I want to, so I want to circle back to stuff that I want to ask you how you broke into the business. Although it's odd because I'm not sure how helpful it is for people since so much has changed, but we might as well talk about it. I mean, sitcoms used to be on kinescopes when we were breaking in, (laughs) you know, was it the Dumont network that gave me my first show? (laughs) Yes. I mean, my story is sort of, sort of interesting for people who like ancient history, Um, (laughs) You know, because in many ways, I was an overnight success. I wrote one spec script and was on the staff of Ned and Stacy two months later. Um, but this was a, an overnight success that, that was seven years in the making. Right. Um, between the time I graduated from college, Brown University. Um, hold for applause. Nothing. Hold for applause. Hold Nothing. for salutes. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Still um, holding. It's still holding. No one seems to <laughs> no one seems to care as much as as I do. Um, b- between graduation and and no and even knowing at the time of graduation that I desperately wanted to be a sitcom writer, it was seven years between then and actually getting my first job. Right. Um, for, for the first few years, it, it just felt as though it was not like a conceivable path in my mind. It's it felt like that was for like the funny people. That's what other people did. Um, but I knew I wanted to write. 
Mm-hmm. And that was something I discovered at Brown. Like I, I went to Brown thinking I was going to be a lawyer, like all dutiful Jewish boys trying to buy their mother's affection through <laughs> grades. Um, that didn't work. So I decided I might as well do something I actually am good at and something that I like. Uh, and I started to realize that like, wow, people seem to be laughing when I'm writing stuff for the school paper. So I knew I wanted to write comedy, but uh, a job in advertising actually felt more uh, conceivable to me. And, and as such, I went on that path and I, and I worked as a copywriter for seven years. And that was in New York or out here? On the West Coast. It started in San Diego, then Los Angeles and finished up in San Francisco. Okay. Um, and I was pretty good at it. And I was starting to actually get like a, a decent amount of success and traction. But all the while, I could not shake the feeling that I really want to write TV. I really want to be a comedy writer. And if I don't try it soon, I'm going to reach that point where I am too successful or too well paid at, at something I don't want to do to mm. ever take the chance. So um, my old partner uh, was a college friend, Steve, and he said, hey, I'm writing a spec script. And I was like, wait, you don't want to be a TV writer. That's my dream. And he's like, well, I'm doing it with another friend of ours. I said, well, tell her we're not doing it. And he and I wrote it over a facsimile machine while he was in LA and uh-huh. I was living in San Francisco. We were never even in the same room. Wow. And, and he was an executive at the time. He was an executive. He frequently wore suspenders by choice. I'm sorry, he was a TV executive, right? He was at, was he at, where was he, Warner Brothers, ABC? Where was he? He was at Universal. He was at Columbia. He was at Spelling. Spelling. And he was at NBC, yeah. So he was well into that career. But he also, he was, you know, he'd been to enough tapings to be like, well, these people aren't that smart. Like, like, I can write, I can write mediocre multicam sitcoms as well as the next guy. So um, you guys teamed up, you wrote a spec, and then what? And then we we were on staff two months later. How did you get into how did you get into someone's hands? What uh well he was dating the woman who became our agent. That helps. So, the, so there is that. <laughs> I mean, he had dated her earlier. They had met in the uh, UTA mailroom. Hi, Sue. That's um, right. She she was my our, our agent at one point, too. Yeah. Um, but like I will say to our credit, like, she was like, you have to send it to me. But we were, we thought that it was almost not kosher. And it sent it to some other people who were going to sign us. Uh-huh. Um, but it was a good, but here's the thing. It was a good spec. Um, and I see why we got hired, but we took a year to write it. Yeah. Because like, you know, we had unlimited time. There was no constraints of being on a show. And then we get to our first job and they say, oh, well, we need our, your first script. <laughs> in a week right well we had no we had no system in place we had never even been in the same city right so we just totally panicked wrote yep. it as quickly as possible turned it in and we're like i think we did it and the, we got called in by our boss michael whitehorn is like guys you know i have to say about this script like it reads like a marx brothers movie and i was like well thank you very much I appreciate <laughs> he's like no this is terrible he goes, I love the Marx Brothers, but that's not how you write TV. He goes, there's no story. There's no setups. It's just bouncing from joke to joke. Mm-hmm. And it literally read like it felt writing it, like it was done out of panic. Yeah. And he, 
and he told us he was going to have to fire us. And this was like, you know, I finally was living my dream after years and years. You did. And you were ready. And, and within like a month, it was it was all going to go away. And I had quit my career in San in San Francisco in advertising, moved down here. I had just gotten married. You know, I always like to say, other than death, divorce, and space travel, I took on all of life's great stressors in one month. But did, um, did you get fired from it? We did not. What happened? And here's some advice for you young folk. Yeah. So I know young folks like this podcast. Um, they, <laughs> might, they might, don't laugh. <laughs> um, he said, well, legally, I have to give you a second script. So you know how long ago it was when you had a two script guarantee. Yeah. He goes, so I might as well let you write it anyway, because I don't have to pay you. Right. So at that point, we, we had nothing to lose because we had already suffered like all the indignity of being fired and everyone in the room knew it so we kind of just slowed down and like pieced it together a lot more carefully and a lot more artfully you know we still you know we still had a ton of jokes but it wasn't in this like frantic style and he and he to his credit he said this is so much better i'm gonna i'm taking it back i'm gonna let you keep your job and we ended up staying there for 24 episodes and we wrote four of them Mm -hmm. And we were, you know, sort of off to the races, but it, you know, so much attention is given to getting that first job and so little attention is given to how do you keep it? Yep. How do you get the second one? How do you go from jobs two to jobs three and four? And that's like, that's the stuff that I'm trying to help people with both online and in my class, which is anyone can kind of break in with like, you know, and I've heard you talk on your, your TikToks about one hit wonders. Like that's not what people should be aspiring to. They shouldn't yeah. be aspiring to, well, I, I, you know, I sold this one movie or I sold this one pilot, but how do you get on a show? How do you, how do you keep, how do you stay in the boss's good graces? Mm -hmm. How do you make friends on a staff as a staff writer um, without being the annoying staff writer who feels compelled to fill the air with your voice Mm -hmm. because you think that everyone's judging you and keeping score and these are you know again these are all super valuable but are, you know lessons that are kind of lost arts in my mind um, i totally agree it's also you know when i the first script that i wrote this is even without siever before i met my partner it was a good script it got me signed by broto curl and webofner but i thought i would never write it wasn't my first script it was the first script, I guess that was good, but yeah. I, I thought I would never do it. How could I do it again? I don't, I, I got lucky. I didn't know how, I didn't know what a story was. I just got lucky, you know? Yeah. I a hundred percent felt that and felt that for a long time. I mean, when I, when I was writing like samples and again, I, I, I sort of jumped ahead and didn't mention that I was trying to write samples for se all seven of those years. Yeah. And I tried it with three or four different partners. I tried it on my own. Interesting. Um, and my real issue was I couldn't finish. You know, like people always say, like, well, you know, what's the, what's your biggest advice? I'm like, finish a script. Yeah. Because I would bellyache at coffee shop houses all over La Brea. Like, why am I not on staff? Oh, do you have a sample? Well, I've never finished one. <laughs> like I couldn't, you know, but like, how did people not know about me? I, I won't stop talking about it. But like, 
I think I, I deep down, I felt that if I were to finish a script and I don't get hired, then like I no longer have a sustainable dream. Like mm -hmm. as long as it was still out there, it was something that I could always like shoot for as a safety valve if I didn't like what I was doing in advertising or in life. But once you finish something, then it becomes tangible and yeah. people read it. But if you don't do that, it, it, there's no way for them to advance you. So uh, and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting you say about keeping the job. I did, I definitely talk about that as well. It's like, how do you keep your job? And so I've seen, <clears throat> I've seen so many, and you must see more than me, but young staff writers just flame out. Flame, they get, it's a shame because you get this job, but you're not ready for it, and then you're done. You yes, know. I've seen so many people get the first job and never get the second job. Yeah, yeah. If you get the second job, there's a pretty good chance that you're in. Uh -huh. um, now, again, that was in the mid-90s when NBC alone had 18 sitcoms on its fall schedule. Yeah. I don't mean 18 sitcoms on all the networks. I mean just on one of the networks. And it's not like the others you know, were only doing you know, yeah. biopics. You know, it, this was an, an era where there was a clear path forward where you could, you could rise through the ranks you could go from show to show. You could take, you know, good credits and get a better job on another show. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we used to always, always, before we knew you guys, we used to resent the hell out of you. We're like, you know, cause we, you know, we'd been on like 10 shows while you guys were on Just Shoot Me and King of the Hill. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, wow, that is, a, that is an entirely other way of doing it, which is, we, look, we would look at you and like, so you're telling me you can get on a really good show, stay there, for do a good job, stay there for a long time, then get on a better show yeah, and do that for a long time. And that was, you know. And a lot of that is luck. Like, you know, <clears throat> we got on a good show and it went four seasons and you got on a show that didn't get, you know, four mm -hmm. seasons. And then you have just, and so, yeah, a lot of that is, you know, that's just luck really, you know. A lot of it is, yes. I mean, and yet, you know, like, now I've had some opportunities to sort of reflect back on my career and there are situations like old Christine, for example, which ran for six years, but we just ran for the first 13 episodes. Right. Um, you know, if I knew better how to play the game um, or, you know, not to take defeat so much to heart, um, you know, and, and a lot of that had to do with like sort of grappling with depression and a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, you know, if I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, I think there might've been a few opportunities along the way where I could have kept a job for longer, but, um, nothing I can do about that now. Not that it, not that it really makes a difference, but do you really, do you see any change <clears throat> between the way young staff writers are were today? Like when you were doing one of your last few shows and they were yeah. when you were first starting off. You see a change in their attitudes or their readiness or anything? No, um, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, because I, I was very fortunate on Fuller House that I was able to promote a ton of younger writers from within the system uh, and, and was able to give them their first staff writing jobs. Right. Um, and like that was a little different than how I had done it, which was, 
you know, in my case, and I think maybe, maybe in your case, but I, I don't want to speak for you. Like certainly in our case, it was you write samples and you break in as a staff writer. And I see more and more that the only way in for a lot of people is to take other jobs on a show in the production, working as a PA and then working up to a writing's assistant or start as a writing assistant, then becoming the, you know, the, you know, the writing supervisor or, or, you know, like that, that sort of path uh, of promotion from within seems to be a lot more common. I know yeah. that didn't answer your, that didn't answer your question specifically about the writers themselves. No, they, they seem just like young writers mm -hmm. who were, who, you know, who were appreciative of the shot. It seems like they've all been maybe out in the cold a lot longer than we were. Yeah. Uh, before they get their first break and i think there's less certainty about what comes after because there just aren't as many sitcoms in general and multicams in specific i did a post about this <clears throat> just a couple of days ago about because someone said well you know when are they gonna are they gonna bring back multi-camera sitcom they should bring them back and i was like you know at some point maybe in 10 or 15 years it might almost be impossible <laughs> because who, who it might be impossible now well why I mean, do you they, think so? They, they exist, uh -huh. but they exist either for the very old or the very young. Mm -hmm. And there's been an entire, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but there's been an entire generation that has been raised without them. Right. And, and, which infuriates me because as a historian of the, of the genre, I look back as recently as a couple of years ago. And in the previous, I think, 60 years of sitcoms, the number one sitcom on the air uh, in terms of total viewers had been a multicam in 59 of the six, first 60 years. Yeah. Um, and this even includes like, you know, what you might call like the heyday of the single camera era. And yes, there've been a few hits that have become sizable monsters like Modern Family and The Office, but mm -hmm. The Office even more so, you know, once it, became syndicated or once it went to Netflix. Um, but even during that, those shows having their heydays, the top rated sitcoms were still Two and a Half Men and Big Bang Theory. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, I am someone who strongly believes that the, that the multicam has always been more popular than the single cam. But, and maybe we've spoken about this before, but executives didn't think it was as cool to talk about it at their you know west side cocktail parties mm -hmm. and nobody wanted to be the one who developed you know a big embarrassing show with a laugh track so they would just keep plowing ahead but they always say they're looking for it because it costs less money <clears throat> they always say it, but they never buy them and yeah. in fact many times we would steve and i would sell a pilot to someone um as a single cam, knowing that that's the only thing that those networks were putting on that year. And they say, no, 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 we're really looking for multicams. They would change our pilot to a multicam and then pick it up and say, well, nobody's, there's nowhere, nowhere on the schedule where we can place a, a multicam. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, wait a second, you made me do it. Yeah. Um, but why not, do you think- not, it, not to say it would have gotten on anyway, so. But I'm why not, do you think they couldn't make it today you think it's just a scheduling thing because i had a different feeling about it i think it's a scheduling thing on the one hand 
Um, and I've read some articles recently about the difficulty in scheduling multicams alongside single cams. It's, it's, there was an article just like this week, in fact. But beyond that, I think it's, it is almost just like, why isn't there rock and roll on top 40 radio? Because there hasn't been in 15 years. So there's nobody alive in that age demo who would listen to it. You think so? You think it's a viewership thing? Because I don't. That's not what I, I think. I think I, the problem is, is I think it, when we jumped on a set, you know, when we first were on sitcoms, like especially in multicam, there's so much to learn about how to produce a, a multi-camera show that we weren't, we weren't even thinking of like running one in 10, 15. Like it was like I don't know how to do this. Even when I'm working on it, I'm like I wouldn't be. I, you couldn't put me in charge of this. And then, but now, and, but you, but you come out of a school. So like we were on Just Shoot Me and that came out of Levittown was on Frasier. So we kind of grew out of the Frasier school, which grew out of the Cheers school. So there's like this column of like writers before you that you learn from. Yeah, you know? it's like coming out of like the Bill Belichick coaches tree. Yeah, it's right. Very right. similar. You, if, you're, if you're a, you know, a co-executive producer on, uh, on, one, on a Levittown show, then you can be the executive producer when you get a deal on your next show. Like, very yeah. common to football. Hey, it's Michael Jammin. If you like my videos and you want me to email them to you for free, join my watch list. Every Friday, I send out my top three videos. These are for writers, actors, creative types. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm not going to spam you. And it's absolutely free. Just go to michaeljammin.com slash watch list. Now, like if you wanted to put a single, a multi-camera show on the air, where's the talent pool other than a bunch of old guys or people who've never done it before? Yeah, and, and like, you know, I sounded a little facetious earlier when I said it was the purview of the very old or the very young, but like, I mean that both in terms of the people who create it and the people who watch it. You know, it, it's either like pretty old fashioned, the last remnants of like CBS multicams, Mm -hmm. or it's a Disney Channel Nickelodeon show. Right. Um, and what used to be like the mainstream of comedy doesn't exist. That that really vast middle yeah. isn't there anymore in terms of, of multicams, either in terms of like the space that's given on the schedule or in, in the age of the people who consume it. Yeah. Um, so I just think that people now think of it as old-fashioned and kind of, there's a superficiality, there's a fakeness to it. Yeah. An artificiality, not superficiality, an artificiality to it. Because now that they've seen enough comedies that are written, you know, written and produced like little movies, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's part of this, it's part of the movieization of TV that's happening in the more general sense. Mm -hmm. That, you know, when you look at the streaming services and, and, I, and I think me teaching a class on pilot writing and like, of the of the 15 kids that are writing pilots 14 are writing one hours mm -hmm. one is writing a single cam but of the one hours most are done in like in genres of you know it's superheroes it's science fiction it's it's space and it's zombies yeah you know like all of which wouldn't have been on television when we were breaking in yeah. it was multi-cam comedies and procedural dramas and that was it it was and it was like 
you could wrap your hands around it. It doesn't mean that it was like a glorious time in terms of, you know, this great diversity of product, but like from the perspective of people trying to, you know, like rise up through the hierarchy, it was a lot more tangible and easier to comprehend. Yeah. I was even thinking of shows like, like even like shows were like, give me a break or, or small wonder. Like those shows were also very comfortable, you know, yes. uh, or Punky is, Brewster. Like they're comfortable shows. They don't well, exist I, anymore. It feels like you're setting me up, but <laughs> I am, I have long been a, as much as I try to write edgy stuff and like you and I were on Wilfred. I mean, you know, yeah. like we both have, you know, the bona fides of, you know, to write cool single camera stuff. But I've also been of the belief that the calm in sitcom often stands just as much for comfort as it does for comedy. Yeah. And all those shows you described, um, there was a comforting, soothing value. Now, some of it has to do with we were young at the time. Some of it has to do with our own nostalgia for an easier time. But I mean, that's why I got into sitcoms in the first place, because, you know, my family life was pretty rough. I didn't have a ton of friends, but I loved the Brady Bunch. Yeah. Um, and I found that even like at a very, very young age, like I found that world incredibly soothing. But that's not a good example because that was a single camera show. I know, but it, it doesn't feel like a single camera show. Um, and you're right. But uh, I mean, but whether, but it was still, a, it was still a family sitcom. Yeah. Um, and like, for instance, like when I, like when we were first offered the chance to write on Fuller House, not to run it, but just, you know, to be a co-executive producer in the first season, I had no interest. Mm -hmm. and I was like, I never saw Full House um, but, two, but two things sort of changed my mind. One was my daughter, who was like maybe like 13, 14 at the time. And she's like, you're going to take this meeting and you're not going to fuck it up. It's <laughs> like, this is going to be huge. Because she, you know, she knew the power of the original Full House as a kid who sort of grew up on the reruns. And like whenever she was homesick from school, we would tape her five episodes of The Brady Bunch and five episodes of... Um, full house it seemed easier than actually parenting or offering her medicine um <laughs> but that's neither hither nor thither but the other thing was realizing like okay i don't know full house but i sure know the brady bunch and that full house served the exact same function for kids who were 10 years younger than me as the brady bunch did in my life and yeah. i'm like oh i know what that felt like to, yeah. i know what it felt like to be that age and and want to be soothed by a TV show and right. want to feel like you're part of a, you know, a surrogate family on the air. And, and that, that really helped, helped me as a way in. Yeah. So realize there's always that kind of show. Yeah. It's an interesting, it really is an interesting time for writers. What are you, what are you, how are you advising your students to break in then? What are you telling them? Well, I try not to spend as much time on the how to break in mm. as to give them the tools that might open the door and right. might help them. And, and, and I, you know, what, what I do, again, I'm, I'm sort of evading the question by design. Um, like for instance, I, I run my classes as if they were a writer's room. I push all the tables together. We sit around one big table 
with me at the front, like a big mocker, just yeah. like the old days yeah. at one twentieth at 120th the salary. Right. Um, um, but like, I want them to get used to what it, you know, what it feels like to, you know, pitch amongst their peers, what it feels like to, you know, offer an idea or a joke to somebody at the head of the table. So like, as far as teaching them the craft, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. I don't know that I have as much wisdom when it comes to how does one break in the, these days? Right. Um, I alluded to it a teeny bit earlier, which is one of the things I will say is do not turn down any job on a television show mm -hmm. because that has become more and more the only way in is to rise through the ranks. It, it is entirely a function of who you know. So many of the jobs come from the people doing, you know, the non-writing jobs, that, you know, that lead into it. But you um, also have to be ready. It's not, it's not enough to know somebody. Your script has to, be, you have to know how to write. Well, yeah, I don't know that you're going to get those writing assistant jobs or those PA jobs, even without a script. So, I mean, you have to have a great script now just to get those jobs. Oh, okay. I wasn't aware of that. I think you do. I've I never, I've never read any. I've never asked a PA or write assistant to read their, I, I'd rather not read their script. Yeah, no, I, 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 <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I'm of, the, I'm of the, I'm the same way. I just would rather assume that, they, that they're funny, right. uh, you know, after the interview. But like, yeah, I, again, since I wasn't running the show uh, when we started out, I don't know if they had spec scripts originally. Right. Uh, I inherited so many of them, you know, so by, you know, but what I tell them is like, you know, you're sitting there behind the keyboards, like nobody wants you to be the one pitching jokes all day long, but like pick your battles. Like, right. you know, I've seen, I've seen writing assistants like win a job from pitching a, you know, lobbing a giant joke out of the corner of the room when no one's expecting it. Right. You know, and in some ways, like the pressure's off. No one is expecting you to save the day. Mm -hmm. um, and I always say like, if you really need to be funny, be funny at lunch, you mm -hmm. know, like when you're just like, cause then you were, if you're sitting around one table at lunch, you're all just people. There's not that same hierarchy. Right. People. And then a year from now, when we say, Oh, we need a staff writer. We are far more likely to say like, Oh, so-and-so made me laugh, you know, you know, while I was eating my gaucho grill, then, uh, <laughs> you know, then have to read a stack of scripts, you know, you know, so like I say, like you can break it as a staff writer, the traditional way, you can get hired um, at in another type of job, like we've just been talking about within the production. And then there's all these writing programs that, that mm -hmm. I think still exist, even though Warner Brothers a few weeks ago said they were canceling the Warner program. Uh, they brought it back. They brought it back. Okay, yeah. that's like that is like the third way, and that that's still a valid. And beyond that, I don't really know how. I know people all want to be discovered. Everyone. Everyone wants to like write a pilot that gets bought by a streamer. Mm -hmm. and they want to be a celebrity showrunner, right? And I don't know, I don't know that that exists, but it probably exists just enough that everyone thinks they can do it. Like for yeah. instance, like I'm teaching at Chapman, which is a fabulous program. It like barely existed 20 years ago, mm -hmm. and now it's like the fourth film school in the country, according to the you know the most recent rankings. And like their big claim to fame is the two brothers who created Stranger Things, like in their 20s. Right. Like out of nowhere. I think they had one credit 
And the next thing you know, they have a show that's the biggest show on all television in all medium. Right. Streamer cable, pay cable, anything. I forgot broadcast. That used to be a thing that we cared about. Um, but like, everyone's like, well, the Duffer Brothers did it. Why can't I create right. some, some genre sci-fi? And it's like, you can possibly, but that's, again, that's the exception. Yeah. What's going to happen if you don't? I think that's exactly right. I think that's, that's the exception. It's a, and it's such a remarkable exception that the media picks up on it and talks about it because it's a, what an unusual story. And then therefore people think, oh, that's how you do it, you know? And I guess that's, I mean, if we really were being fair, there's always been that media story of the wunderkind, you know, mm -hmm. 20 years ago, it was Josh Schwartz. He's, he's 11 years old and he created the OC. Yeah. You know, there's always, you know, there's always someone who got, you know, I think James L. Brooks was one of them, you know, right. like there's always somebody who in their twenties gets a show on the air and ruins it for everybody else. Mm -hmm. but, 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 but I mean by ruining it by everybody else is it creates this illusion that all you need to do is sell a pilot, not learn how to write TV. Yeah, I, you know, I remember when we were first signed or not, yeah, I guess it was with Shiva signed. And um, our agent said, oh, oh no, no. She said it to me before, before I was with Shiva. She said, you know, I signed one new baby writer a year you're the baby writer in three years, you're going to be running your own show. Wow. And, and I, and I, I, I smiled very play. Oh, that's great. And then after I hung up, I was seriously panicked. I was like, run my own show. I, I, I don't even know if I can write another script. Like that's the last thing I want to do is run our own show. Of course. Now here's something I'm going to admit to you that you're, you're going to laugh at me and, and, and that's okay. It would not be the first time. Like, Steve, and, and, and I can't talk too much about it because it's part of ongoing litigation, some of the specifics of this, but Steve and I were offered the opportunity to run Fuller House uh, beginning season four. Mm -hmm. um, so we had been doing this for, I think, 22 years. I was like 53 years old, 52 yeah. years old. And I said, no, because the thought of running a show even with 22 years experience, even at 52 years old, seemed inconceivable to me. Yeah. Now, you know, I have a history of severe panic disorder and a lot of other things that, that contribute to that. And then they came back and offered it to us again. They're like, no, no, we, we thought about someone else. It's you. And we said no again. Um, because no, no, we're, we're in a kind of an extreme case, but part of it was a function of that ship had sailed in my mind mm -hmm. as far as like being a possibility. Like when you, when you're hitting your, your, you know, your, your early to mid fifties and you've not run a show, I think it's a, it's a, it is a fair assumption to say that the business doesn't see you that way. Mm -hmm. like you're, you know, that Steve and I were very competent number twos and very competent number threes. Mm -hmm. um, but the thought of actually like, taking on the big chair still seemed like something that like engendered panic. Yeah. And, and then, you know what? We did it and I loved it. And I, I loved doing it. I was eager to do it again. Um, you know, we did 30, 31 episodes uh, under our helm and like started to take on responsibilities and 
facets that I'd never ever even thought about. Right. It was great. So and I so even though I never got to do it another time or another time yet, I'm thrilled that I was able to get past that fear because it really yeah. was like the sort of the last fear that was out there for me. But the thing is, when people say that, when the people say, I want to run my own show, and I said, do you, you don't even know what a showrunner does. Like, why would you, like, why, why, why are you signing up for a job you don't even know what the job entails? Well, because they've seen Matt Weiner give an interview at the end of Mad Men or Vince Gilligan at the huh. end of Breaking Bad, and they know that, like, you know, they know what their salaries are, and they know their celebrities. Yeah. You know, and, and they get good, you know, they get good tables at Mr. Chat. I mean, I don't know, but like, I didn't know what is, there was no such thing as a celebrity showrunner when we yeah. were breaking in. Like there were, yes, there were successful people, you know, like I was very aware who created Seinfeld and friends and who created cheers and what the back ends were. Right. But that thing where, and it really is kind of a function of premium TV, like sort of the post Sopranos, one hour world you know the mad men the sopranos breaking bads the shield the wire deadwood like those have really kind of deified the one hour showrunner as like pop culture celebrities yeah and they've they've sort of become the new film directors yeah right so everybody wants that right and again like if you see the duffer brothers do it you know, at, at 28 years old or however, however young they were, um, people are, people rightly do ask, why not us? Mm -hmm. But again, like I had been doing TV for 22 or 23 years before I took over that show and still had no conception of what running a show entailed. Yeah. In terms of just the sheer enormity of the pressure of the responsibility. And that was with two of us. And that was with two of us dividing the task. I have mm -hmm. no idea how someone does that on their own. Yeah. Because even with two people, it felt like 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 a Herculean superhuman effort. Yep. Yeah. And I'm sure you found the same thing. Like um, there's so many different you're making a decision all day long, every day at a furious pace yep and yet there's nothing like it like it was so it was you know and i don't mean like just from like a, the standpoint of like i felt powerful but like there were like having such a sense of purpose every day was fantastic uh -huh. like, you know overcoming fears and like developing like a skill set like that i didn't even know i needed to possess like that was interesting yeah you know, so i feel i mean it, it certainly helps me as a teacher because if I had never run a show, I'd feel like a little bit like a fraud offering notes and like fixing scripts and mm. having now having done it like at, yeah, I'm not gonna say the highest levels, but a high level, right? Um, you know, I, I feel like far more qualified to be the one teaching people because I feel like I've done at least the equivalent of that in, in TV. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because even as I, before I started doing, like talking on social media, I was like, well, you know, I, who, I'm not Vince Gilligan. I'm not Chuck Lorre. I'm not Steve Levitan. I'm not, I'm not the highest there is, you know? Um, well, 
Well, two things come to mind. Number one, don't sell yourself short because you're still super high within, you're still super high within the, you know, the pecking order. Like once you take out those, those few brand names, right? you've done it. You've, you've run multiple shows and you've run multiple good shows and people liked working for you. And, um, you know, like the, the job we did together on, on yeah. Glenn Martin was a pleasure. And, uh, you know, it's probably the closest I ever felt to like really writing in my own voice. Yeah. Uh, and, just, and kind of just letting go and not being self-conscious and just writing whatever felt silly or funny. Right. So that's one thing you've done. But the other thing where I think you have a leg up, in fact, is when was the last time Chuck Lorre or Steve Levitan had to really think about what they were going to do next and plot accordingly, you know, like both of them just go to Suarez and say, get me a, get me, you know, get me a show on Hulu. And they do like, but that's not like how people in real, in real life behave. Yeah. I, that's when I talked about with my wife, she goes, well, yeah, but that, those are the superstars. You could talk to, you can speak to what does it mean to be a working writer who's not a superstar. Who's no, just, that's a hundred percent right. It's a little insulting that our wives know about people who are superstars and they, they tend to usually be taller. Um, <laughs> full head of hair, but like, um, I don't, I don't know that Steve Levitan or, or Chuck Lorre or, you know, or Larry David is going to speak as, you know, as succinctly or as impactfully as you do about, mm -hmm. you know, the, the like day-to-day -day mechanics of breaking in, building a career, keeping a job. And those are, you know, those are the things that I talk about day to day. And, and now I've moved on to the third, you know, the third thing, which is how do I build like a sort of a purposeful life outside of the writer's room right. and, and try to use the skills that I developed or the knowledge that I accrued and either help others or, you know, gain satisfaction for myself. And I'm, you know, trying really hard to still do both without, you know, the, the you know, the old crutches that I used to have, which is, you know, getting laughs from a, from a gaggle of Jews. <laughs> it's so NJB. NJB. We, um, you know, I want, when people, they'll comment on social media. Sometimes I'll, I'll make a post and then I guess people are, I don't know if they're being argumentative or just trying to impress me or whatever, but they'll say, yeah, but Quentin Tarantino says, and I'm like, Quentin Tarantino? Is anybody just, is anyone mistaking you for Quentin Tarantino? Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> have his career. That, but I mean, but they're, they're I mean, it, it's beyond annoying, but that's always been the case. I remember like my, one of my first or second jobs running into like the wife of someone I went to college with. And she's like, why aren't you on Seinfeld or South Park? That's what we watch. Yeah. We don't watch the shows you're on. I was like, okay, first of all, like you're a viewer. You didn't create either of those shows. Unless you're, unless you change your name to Matt Stone, like, you're not those people. So like pipe down a little. I said, secondly, you have to think about this. Like it's the NBA. Like, Hey, yeah. like I'm coming out of college. I want to be on the Lakers. Who gives a fuck what you want? You were drafted by the Pelicans. Like, like we don't get to choose where we write. Yeah. Like, like Oh, Tarantino said like, okay, you're not Tarantino. And like, trust me, I'm doing better than you are. So like, you know, I mean, yes, but that, I mean, that's gone on forever and ever. I'll tell you a story. My grandmother, 
may she rest in peace. She just, she passed away a year ago and she ended up being, she lived to 99 years and eight months and ended up dying as a very kind person for like the first 95 years she wasn't. Right. And like, she would admit that. And like, we had no relationship. And like, on, I, I had been on four jobs at the time. Um, and on all four, she told me how much she didn't like the show I was on. <laughs> so she invited Beth and I out for dinner. I hope it wasn't Glenn Martin. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. That would have been later that she didn't like. Okay. What's, she's like, who watches Claymation? <laughs> Why is there a laugh track, Scooby? <laughs> but she, so she invites Beth and I out to dinner with her and her, her boyfriend. Um, and she's like, oh, that show, that then Stacy, I hated that show. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm on a different show now. Oh, I don't like that show either. Okay. And I literally said, Grandma, like, I, I'm happy to tell you that before I, right before I came to dinner today, I came, I'm coming directly from a meeting. I had just had a meeting on Frasier. Uh-huh. Now, Frazier at the time had just won the Emmy for Best Comedy five years in a row. Right. Anything's going to impress her. And she goes, oh, she goes, I hate that show. It's a dumb show. <laughs> so I say to myself, okay. And I turn to Beth, like she can see that I'm seething. And, and, and Beth and I are huddling. And I'm like, the woman doesn't know anything about television. She's an older, she's an older Jewish woman from a different era. She's not going to like anything you do. She, does, she knows nothing about television. I was like, you're right. That's why would I get myself upset? She knows nothing. And then she says, why don't you write something like David Kelly? Mm -hmm. And then the boyfriend says, it's David E. Kelly. And uh -huh. then I realized, no, she knew a tremendous amount about television. <laughs> like she knew chapter and verse, everything that he had written from Ally McBeal to Picket Fences. She just right. didn't like what I was doing. Right. But, uh, I, don't remember, I don't remember how we got to this, but oh, annoying people telling us our credits aren't good enough. Right. It's like, yeah, like I remember, I remember when people were on Raymond for the, you know, all nine years, and I'd be like, these lucky saps, like had they haven't had to go through anything that we've gone through. They got one job. They had a. They had to go to a few movie nights on a Sunday with yeah. Phil Rosenthal. Never eat dinner there. Yeah, and they get nine years of fat paychecks, and that's just not. That wasn't our experience, but our yeah. experience certainly prepared us for more kinds of experiences. And I and it certainly behooved me. I believe when it when it was time to run a show, you know, I definitely had far more of an awareness of what I wanted a room to feel like, mm -hmm. uh, what I wanted it not to feel like specifically, yeah. uh, you know, based on having had so many different kinds of experiences. And that's, that's like point two that I always tell the kids, which is try not to extrapolate from any one experience because it's just one experience. Right. Like when I was on Ned and Stacy, and he didn't like our script and all the writers were bullies in the room you know, and like Charlie Kaufman was over in the corner, like rocking back and forth because they were so mean to him. And he'd right. already written being John Malkovich. And I'm like, so they're really not going to be nice to us. He had already written John Malkovich at that point? Already written John Malkovich. So he was like leaving the room to get calls like, uh, Michael Stipe is on the line for you. You know, like, wow. You know, Spike <laughs> Jones is on the line. Um, and they were still being mean to him because he was shy and yeah. he was reserved. And it was, you know, it was, the late 90s multicam room where if you're not a, like a total misogynistic chauvinistic prick 
right. don't get to move up or, or be heard. Right. Um, or that's how it felt on that show. But then I was like, okay. But then my next job wasn't like that. Right. Um, so I, I always try to impress upon people that like the key is to have enough experiences such that no one experience becomes definitive in your mind because every show is different. Right. You know, like Glenn Martin being the perfect example. I mean, but that was fun. You had fun, man. And, and, you know, I don't tell you enough, but I should, you guys saved my life. You know, I don't want to make this a depressing podcast, but um, your, your listeners should know that Michael and, and his partner Siebert hired me less than two weeks after my father took his own life. I um, thought, I thought it was during, but okay. You remember better than was, I. It was literally right before. Okay. Like I would stay in bed and cry all day. And they're like, you have a meeting on a, on a, on a claymation show. And then the tears are really flowing. <laughs> and then it was like, oh my God, you thought that suicide was bad. <laughs> Noah, but like, I mean, but, but for me to have a place to go mm-hmm. and a place to laugh all day and a sense yeah. of purpose. And the second we would finish, I would go back into my office or into my car and cry because yeah. I literally was like so bereft and like searching for like answers. But like the fact that eight hours a day, you guys gave me a place to yeah. laugh and to like, you know, feel good about myself was it, like, it, it's a gift. I can never repay you. I mean, I, I feel like I'm repaying you a little doing your podcast, but I don't know that I can ever, <laughs> fully, I don't know that I can ever fully repay you, but it was, but, you know, like it was, such a meaningful thing that you offered me but it was it was actually very mutual because you you know you we hired you and then you guys turned in your your script it's like we're like oh god thank god they can write oh, yes. <laughs> that's, no, that's a big deal you don't assume yeah, you, can write. how would you know at the time you're just like well they said yes to a claymation show we yeah I, them. <laughs> yeah i have my doubts they said yes to this job and now i have my doubts about them <laughs> and we were like we were like well we have to take i mean these guys are you know, these are the guys from King of the Hill. And they're like, why are you, then we get there. And you're like, why are you here? We know why we're taking it. We wanted to run a show. But that was uh, uh, boy, oh boy. Yeah, that was a fun show. But man, that, that was, that was fun. I would have done that for, I would have done that for years and years. But yeah, uh, that was the, that was the plan. But no one else. Once again, it was not up to us. It was the parent, it was the, that Christian Parents Association canceled us. <laughs> they're like you know and Siebert used to describe it, it was this is the babysitting channel and uh, but at, at eight o'clock the babysitting channel turns to Nick at night but no one tells no one told the parents <laughs> watching no no because why would you why would you think that the show <laughs> puppets you know had a talking dog and you know like all the all, all the hallmarks of what you're getting during the day <laughs> You know, plus a laugh track, you know. <laughs> they were shocked. <laughs> yeah, they were shocked to see Michael Eisner making television. I think. <laughs> Isn't that the guy who created the Bazooka Joe movie? <laughs> oh, we had some laughs though. But what boy, boy, we came up with some really crazy stories on that show. <laughs> yeah, I mean I mean it should have been far more famous. If it was if it was just if it, I always thought, and again, you guys disagreed, I think. But it didn't matter because we all inherited the show yeah. from, from other people. But like, I was strongly of the belief that a, a claymation show would never work. Um, and if it had been a regular animated animated show, I thought it, it would have worked really well. And it might have run for a long time. I think only would have worked on a different network, though. 
and on a different network. Yeah. And maybe with some different actors and, and different writers. That's why you bothered yeah. that. I always like the claymation. What my problem with it, and then we go, well, we'll wrap up, we're going over here. But my problem okay. with it wasn't, I liked the claymation. I just didn't like the, the mouse being animated. The mouse were done by on computer. And to me, whenever we got slick on that show, whenever we did computer special effects, I didn't like that. I thought everything should be practical. No, you know? I understand that. I used to, I, I forgot how I articulated it at the time, but it was very, it was very succinct. But it was like, it was a show for nobody. <laughs> it was a show for TV writers is what it was. <laughs> well, but by which I mean, like, if you were over 12, you were never going to watch a claymation show. But why would you watch that as opposed to animation? It's the same thing. It's not the same thing. I swear to you, uh -huh. it is not the same thing. There's a reason that Bob's that Bob's Burgers that started right. the exact same time is is only at its halfway point now. Yes, and, I know. And we've, been, and we've been done for a decade. Um, I swear to you, the th something about puppets means that nobody over twelve is going to watch, and nobody under twelve was allowed to watch because it was so filthy. Yeah, so it was like the it was the world's worst Venn diagram. <laughs> <laughs> Like our sweet spot where like couldn't find each other. But but TV right, we liked writing it because we just did whatever it was like it was Oh my it, god, the process of writing it was genius. Yeah. I never laughed harder. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and and then I would see it and it was still funny, but I also knew that it had kind of a limited yeah, limited appeal, certainly on Nick at night, where you don't go for original material. Like that doesn't exist. Yeah. Um but like I've had experiences where I've been on shows, and I'm not going to give names, where we would laugh all day long. Boy, right. did we have fun in those rooms. Then you'd watch the show, you're like, what were we laughing about? <laughs> so, you know, it was okay. Those were rooms that were so fun and so funny. And then I've been on shows, some with you, uh -huh. uh, that involved like an Australian dog, uh -huh. or so teeny. And I love Zuckerman, and I love the show. And it's a miracle that it turned out because the day-to-day -day was so pedantic. It was a grind, and yeah. It was like being on like the world's hardest higher level philosophy class, like, yeah. you know, like, you know, Kant, the early years. Yeah. And you're like, I don't know how this ends up, I don't know how this discussion ends up as a, com as like a beloved comedy, but it did. Um, yeah. Same with Andy Richter. Andy Richter was just silence. And watching Victor Fresco type, oh. and, you know, and then you're, and then you watch the show, and you're like, "Wow!" Somehow this went from like you know a torturous beginning to a hilarious show, and then a lot of multicams have been the opposite. Yeah, super funny rooms, kind of funny shows. Yeah, yeah. So you never like so those people like you know what's your favorite show? Like no, there's something great about all right. of them. People don't understand that as well. Sometimes, like you know, they think all this crappy TV. Like, it's hard to make even bad television. It's oh really we're all trying well, hard. It, it's harder. Uh -huh. Be, I mean, I, yes, I'm not going to name that. I'm not going to name names, but like, I've been on so many multicams that are like impossible. Yeah. Um, and especially multicam. Like, I feel like in single cam, you can always fake it with you know with some funny music and clever editing but there's no faking a bad yeah. multicam yeah it's true it, 
if there's no laughter in front of the audience, there's no laughter. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've worked with one showrunner who didn't care whether it was actually funny because the show was so popular and loved anyway that it didn't matter whether the jokes actually were funny because he knew they were going to get laughs anyway. Right. So that's a, that's a different thing. But like most shows don't have that kind of goodwill going into them. But a multicam that's that's not not firing and that you're having to like throw out every night after run through and essentially start again. Yeah. I, I don't think I could do that again. I'm uh, yeah, you have to be young for that. You I'm do. taking I'm gonna take my zero savings and move on. <laughs> I'm taking my chips off my chip off the table. <laughs> my chip off the table. I still have a still living off of a couple of Israeli war bonds. <laughs> but i'll be all right but like i mean that's a hard life that is a young person's life yeah yeah people don't realize the hours on a multi-camera can be really hard really hard and i also didn't really realize that a lot of the i alluded to it earlier the the kind of chauvinism and bro frat culture Mm -hmm. that that was really more i mean i know it also you know you got it on scrubs and you got it on a bunch of other shows i'm not going to name like scrubs uh, but like you know but but that really was kind of a function of multicam culture mm-hmm. um, we haven't talked about eric weinberg the celebrity rapist yet but <laughs> we haven't we have not talked about it that's another, <laughs> that'll be another another episode i said that's that's where you and i solved the mystery but like <laughs> No, but that, like, you know, I, I, there was an article about that, a really definitive article last week in The Hollywood Reporter. And what I found most interesting was not, I mean, the rapes were so abhorrent and the sexual abuse he inflicted on people, even in writer's rooms, was so unbelievably despicable. But what was really fascinating was the stuff that, like, he just got away with and they went show to show and talked about the things he did to women on each show in the writer's room the, and what he got away with because it was, hey, it's the early 2000s and this is how a room has got to be. And that I don't miss. But we, but we were, you and I worked with him, honestly, for I think two weeks. It was not a long time on Wilfred. And I, I didn't see any of that. I really didn't say any of that. It was, no, it was only two weeks, I think. And I don't think I was even there. I think I, came, I joined the staff I only saw him one day when he came and turned in a, a we turned in a script. He might have done it. Yeah, he may have done a free. He probably wasn't even said. He probably just did a freelance. So it was yeah. literally two weeks, and he was there. But I had always heard stories, not about rape, obviously, and not about abuse, but just like jerky room behavior mm-hmm. and like frat guy bro kind of right. bullying and like that kind. And like again, it was not limited to him, but he was sort of indicative of what passed for like room life then and i do think and like you know as much as people our age frequently will complain about like new the new woke hollywood and rooms are so this and you know sensitive now like no they're so much better than they used to be Mm -hmm. because it's not based on this like abusive behavior there's far greater representation within the rooms within the stories you're telling and like and like what you're seeing on screen, um, I think I think that's only better. You know, right. I think it's better like you know that all of our kids go to schools where, you know, they talk about sensitivity and and like being a good person versus 
what we grew up with, which is like, don't be so sensitive. Stop crying, Brian. <laughs> well, Brian, I, I can't thank you. This is a fun chat, man. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, it's always a pleasure to talk it's to It's always you. fun. But I want to find out, make sure, make sure people can follow you. What's your Twitter handle? Because I know you got a big Twitter following. It, it, it is for now. At least for now, I'm I'm still over two hundred thousand, which is not bad for just like a. But you like were a, over three hundred thousand at one point. Um, no, that was you on TikTok. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Mazel Tov. No, but I'm I'm uh, I think I'm at two hundred six thousand, which you know for a guy who's just like, you know, nobody follows me because I'm a celebrity. They just right. like I literally have taken kind of a lunch a lunch pail approach, and I just. Right tweet every day that so you can reach see me at uh at brian bihar with b-r-y-a-n-b-e-h-a-r you haven't even made fun of me being turkish no or, i have not or sephardic i don't know maybe that's the new you well um, we're gonna we'll translate this <laughs> i thought we we're gonna translate this into ancient <laughs> turkish in ladino no I, th I thought you were gonna start out with you know here we are live from downtown ankara <laughs> <laughs> so this was great you 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 crack me up you make me feel funnier um and oh. I've I've been recommending your uh, your TikTok uh, tutorials to all my students. A lot of them who I mentioned this to today had in fact seen them and, and have benefited from them. So that's nice. Uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. I I I mean, you you just took off and you really found a a nice a nice niche. And it's surprising. It's surprising. yeah. I hope it sell, I hope it sells your book because that's. Uh, <laughs> we'll you know, Sure. I mean, but I mean, you're doing great stuff. I'm. I'm sorry I didn't see your, 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 your performance, but I will the next time. Oh, I'll. I'll. I should. I'll give it a plug. But I want to make sure I get, I get your plugs. Also, your Substack. What's the What's the URL for that again? I think that's just my name as well. Uh, it's okay. brianbr.substack.com. And you have, you have so uh, many. You can, also, you can also find my any of my back articles on uh, huffingtonpost.com or medium.com by typing in. My, the uh, the name I just gave you. Go follow Brian, everyone. He's and a real hoot. He's a, oh, he's a hoot. Um, and and that's it. Remember to sign up. Let me. Just make, I plug. This is where I plug everything I do. Sign up for our, my free newsletter at michaeljammon.com/slash/watchlist, where I give away tips. Taking every, over the world. God every damn. Friday, I take over the world. Uh, and then, of course, if you want to see me tour on my with my show, if you're whatever city you're in, go to michaeljammon.com/slash/upcoming Oh, we're touring, Brian. We just got back from Boston. You're like Argo Speedwagon. This is fantastic. <laughs> Why don't I get hired? I have all the current references. <laughs> yeah, all my references are fresh. Uh, yeah, michaeljammon.com slash upcoming. And uh, and that's it. You can go, you check up, uh, follow me on, on Instagram and, and TikTok at, at Michael Jammon Writer and Facebook, if you know what Facebook is, if anyone knows what that is. All right, everyone, Brian, thank you again so much for joining me. And, and don't go anywhere. Thanks. This has been an episode of Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jammon. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing this podcast with someone who needs to hear today's subject. For free daily screenwriting tips, follow Michael on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Michael Jammon Writer. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Phil A. Hudson. This episode was produced by Phil Hudson and edited by Dallas Crane. Until next time, keep writing.